Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and today is a very special bonus episode with none other than Dan Ozzy, a writer I've been a fan of for many years now. Known as America's only music writer, Dan's words have graced publications like Vice, The Guardian, Billboard, and many, many more. His writing style is known for being straight to the point with specks of observational humor that makes you feel as though you're reading an article written by a friend. That element of his writing was pivotal to me throughout the pandemic, especially earlier on when the days were uncertain. You see, Dan independently runs a newsletter called Reply Alt, which has become one of the most successful newsletters to be ran by a journalist. The subject matter of the newsletter varies from dissecting Jimmy Eat World lyrics with the occasional Simpsons reference, to even investigating the strange coffee drinking habits of a specific individual. I won't be the first to say this, but the attention to detail that Dan puts within his writing is sublime, and I've been dying to chat with him about this for a long time now. We also talk in depth about his new book, Sellout, which is out now. Sellout chronicles a strange gold rush between 1994 to 2007, where record labels signed bands from the scenes of pop punk, emo, and hardcore without really knowing what to do with them. It's an exploration of how difficult it can be to navigate success, especially while you're dealing with it in real time. Chatting with Dan was lovely, and it was incredible getting to trade stories as we delved into both the book and the newsletter. If you're unfamiliar with Dan's work, then just know that I am legitimately jealous that you'll get to experience it for the first time after you hear our chat. This is The New Exchange with Dan Ozzy. Enjoy. So, um, Dan, people have just heard an intro where I basically gush about your writing and how I've loved it over the years. And so with that being said, I felt like the best way to start is to ask, uh, when did music enter your life? Because I actually don't think I know. First of all, thank you for sparing me that because <laughs> I hate compliments about myself. I hate hearing them. I have an aversion. Um, you know, it's it's... In hindsight, not a thing to brag about, but truly um, the way it is, is that I heard Michael Jackson's Bad when I was a kid. And that album had just come out when I was about five. And uh, yeah, in a weird way, that that's the earliest music memory I can remember having. Really? And was it kind of like one of those things where, I mean, obviously that's one of the most infectious songs of all time, but do you feel like it was a thing where you latched onto that when you were young, like the song itself? Just the album, like I just, it was on the radio. It's hard to explain. I was trying to explain this to a friend, but um, I haven't like been able to put this into the proper words. But when you're a kid, like everything is new to you. Like the entire world is new to you. So I don't think you understand the concept of new, relatively new things. Like I didn't understand that Michael Jackson's Bad had just come out and everybody in the world was hearing it at the same time I was like, I thought I was catching up, you know, cause like, you know, at five years old, you're just like, wow, this entire world, what have I missed in the, before I was, and so like, you're just trying to like learn as much as you can. So I really feel like uh, when I, I didn't even understand that it was new. I just understood that I liked it. And I, this weird person on the cover, like I was so interested in what they were wearing and like their Michael's like hair. I remember I was so obsessed with that and like the belt buckles and stuff like that on his, on his clothes. I was just like the music, but also just like the physical item of the album, you know? 
Yeah. You know, this is going to sound like the most fake thing of all time, and I promise that it's not. But I actually remember when I was a kid, my dad had the vinyl of um, Thriller. Yes. And it was one of the things in the house that you weren't allowed to touch. And <laughs> it was like, in terms of hierarchy, it was like the VCR and then the Thriller vinyl. That's so funny. My, my parents had um, eight tracks and this was like the mid 80s. So at this point, eight tracks were pretty much like obsolete. Like it was cassettes, <laughs> you know? And I remember asking one time, like, hey, what are those? And they were like, yeah, it's, I, I guess they must have made a joke. Like that's just some junk, you know? And then one day I just destroyed them. Like I was downstairs <laughs> and I just destroyed all of their eight tracks. And they were like, why did you do that? And I was like, you said you don't use them. And yeah, I, I pretty much destroyed uh, my family's eight track collection. So I feel like that story is going to be very helpful for anyone who's listening, who's about to be a parent. They're probably noting now, okay, things not to say. Be careful what you say. Like, it's just probably just better to just be like, don't touch that. Don't be careful with it. <laughs> like your dad did with Thriller, you know? No, exactly. So, you know, something that's it should really... be afraid of you is what I'm saying. Your children <laughs> should fear you. <laughs> Objectively, very true. I would agree with that, honestly. If I consider about how I was raised. And, um, you know, what's really interesting about critical writing is how it's a profession that requires you to be both passionate and constantly objective towards the things that you love. And it's interesting where you're enjoying something or maybe even disliking something, and you have to make sense of why you feel the way that you do and convey that to others. And would you say this is an aspect of writing that has always come easy to you? Or do you feel like it's been a gradual process over the years? I think that like when I was younger, like in my late teens, when I was getting, when I, you know, like when I was more into like the music I listen to now and also getting into like writing, like I remember it as be everything being such a gut reaction and like arguing with my friends and just dying on these like stupid hills of what album is good and what is bad. And I remember when I was younger, everything that I ever wrote about music was from that perspective of like, I'm right. And my opinion is sound. And I have to like defend that with my honor right now. But then like, as you go on, as you get older, you're kind of, I think you lose that a little bit and try to hopefully do it in a smarter way, like justify something's importance in a way that's just like, this rocks, fuck everything else. You know, like, just doing it in a, in a way that um, adds something to the art itself. So yeah, but I, for the record though, I don't think that that's a, a skill that I necessarily have, like critical evaluation. I don't write record reviews really. I never, I haven't d done it in many years. I've never written for Pitchfork or anything like that. Like, I don't think I am very good at analysis. And I, to be honest, don't often think that art needs analysis. Art is art. It means what it means to people. But um, I'm much more interested in like, if I'm interested in a piece of music or something like that, getting to know the person who made it and like, what was what what is their life like that it led to them making this piece of art, you know, so I always like, have drifted more towards the storytelling or the narrative side of music. Do you know what's interesting about hearing you say that? I think it's one of those things that kind of delves into how the aspect of being critical can have many different facets and could even go beyond people's, you know, innate kind of perception of it. Because I think about one of the things I've loved about your writing over the years is how your perspective on something feels so 
true and tied to your own personal experiences, but you will write about acts in a way that will make it feel as though you're really conveying what this group's about. I think about a group like Jimmy Eat World, which is a group that has a very interesting quality of growing with an audience while gaining new people. And I feel like over the years, as I've read, you write about them. It's almost allowed me to have a new perspective of them as I've gotten older, where it's like, I've never really viewed them as that band that I listened to as a kid. I still view them as that band that's like still here in a way. Yeah. And it, I mean, it's funny. I don't know if this goes to what you're talking about, but I, I feel like it's challenging to write about bands, both bands that have been around for a long time and bands that are very new and young. Because I feel like when you write about a band that's been around for a long time, it's like, well, what can I possibly add to this that has, they've, say a band's been around for like two decades. You're like, well, what could I possibly ask this person? You know, like, what, what am I writing about a band that's been written about a million times before? On, on the other side, too, like when a band is very new, perhaps they haven't even put out any music yet, but you just like what they're doing and they don't really have much of a story yet. And that's its own challenge, right? Trying to find like, what is your deal? It's like, you know, like trying to get a newborn to talk in, in a way. Um, but yeah, that is an interesting middle ground, what you're talking about, just sort of like writing like chronicling a band as they transition from, you know, like over the years. A band that I think about a lot with that is like, of course, Pup, who I feel like I'm just tied to for life because I was the first maybe person to write about them and now they're so big and I'm just watching them get bigger and bigger and like, yeah, like I've, eventually they're just going to just keep getting bigger. And I just feel like I've written about them like every two years for almost a decade now, you know? So um, yeah, that, that's a weird, unexpected result of my like doing this for a long time. No, absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually glad you brought up Pup because they're a band that I've grown to love a lot, largely due to your writing as well. And um, they're actually on a previous iteration of this podcast the last time they were touring, like right before they went on stage at Terminal 5. And I remember seeing you at their gigs like years ago and being way too nervous to like go up and talk to you. <laughs> but funny. I've had friends over the years who are like, no, he's such like a nice guy, even though he looks like, you know, Terminator 8000. But you know. Yeah, I try to put, I try to give off like the most unapproachable um, <laughs> vibe, but I am fairly approachable, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. But I mean, I can honestly say for me personally, as someone who's like, feels like they've grown with a band like Pup over the years through their records. Your writing's instrumental in that. And I feel like I'm not the only person who would say that. That's kind of what I thought about that initial question about the critical thinking aspect, because even though it's not like critiquing a record or a song in the conventional sense, offering your perspective can like shed light on someone else's perspective in a way. Mm. Yeah. And you know what's weird? An unintended consequence of that is that for whatever reason, like I have like a little bit of a platform and, um, for whatever reason, people sometimes listen to me about music. And it's just very weird because um, if I really get into a band like Pup early and I say, hey, this band is great, people should listen to them. And then sometimes people do, you know, not just because of what I said, but because Pup is a good band and they're gonna catch on if people hear them. So, and then like to keep doing that, it's, it's, it creates this weird back and forth where now like I know that a lot of the people who follow me definitely are into pup and it it creates this weird um communal experience that i didn't expect and yeah. you know not to sound so like arrogant but if i 
if I go to a, a, a show for a band like Pup, I stand like the highest chance of being recognized there because I'm just a mega fan like them, too. you know, like everybody there. And so like it, it is, it creates this weird like communal enjoying of bands. And it's, it's been really nice because you'll be online and you'll make either like a joke or an appreciation post about Pup and everybody jumps in and, and it's, it's a really cool like little community I've, I'm in the middle of sometimes I feel. Yeah. And, you know, I was going to bring this up later on, but it'd be a good time to bring it up now because I honestly feel like one of the ways, see, I feel like I'm about to make you like convulse because this is going to have an innate like compliment in it. So sure. I'll apologize I had beforehand, but after you say yeah. it, then knock me down a peg. Then just to even it out so I feel good. Just remind me of what my bank account looks like. Or something. <laughs> but go ahead, yeah. <laughs> but um, I can honestly say one of the things that helped getting through the pandemic, like making it feel like it was even this thing that was possible to get through, was following your newsletter, uh, Reply Alt, which was, um, you know, I feel like one of the reasons why it stands out to me is because it felt as though you were trying to make sense of what was happening while doing it in such an overt way. Like you would talk about the fact that you're writing this book, which we're obviously going to talk about, but in the midst of the fact that the world is on fire and it's like, hey, you know, I have these records that I love and everything's fucked right now, but I guess we could still talk about this. Like I even think about a time about how authentic it felt, how you'd write about Jimmy World Records again and like, just commenting how everything there's like a nice little duality and bringing up a band like that and their discography and then talking about how fucked the world is. And I wonder, how did you find the experience of writing the newsletter throughout 2020 into this year? If I can be honest, I found it very conflicting. Um, one, because, you know, like for a lot of the time I was like writing the book and I didn't always want to focus on the newsletter, but beyond that, you know, like I, I had a lot of conflict about it not and I talked to a lot of friends who are musicians and whatever and they felt the same thing where you're like does the world need this right now because like there were some times where like there were things that were so heavy to deal with just like the, you're watching the number of COVID deaths go up or you're like watching Black Lives Matter rallies and you're just like man there's so much important heavy stuff going on does the world need my take on what Jimmy World's doing. And I don't know, like you can look at it one way and be like, you know, I'm not voicing enough support for these things or whatever. Or you can look at it as like, it might just be, people just might want to just like unplug for a minute. You know what I mean? And, and read about Jimmy World. It's like, I don't know, like I watch like Futurama to go to bed at night. I don't really... And I'm glad that their episodes are not about Trump or whatever, you know, because I just want to think about something different. So in a way, like, yeah, it was, it was tough to balance those two things simultaneously, both being like, I don't, I want to get out of the way right now. And also too, like, oh, but maybe I should entertain people because that's what they follow me for. And um, I'm glad to hear that you liked it um, because I, I still felt like guilty about that balance in a weird way, you know? No, yeah. I mean, what you described there was very much um, how it functioned for me, where it was nice having it be a form of escapism, but still reflective of both the world and an actual person's feelings. Like, it's not like you would sugarcoat things or try to make things seem like the nicest in the world. It's just like, 
hey, what about this thing that we could think about as opposed to the myriad of things? It didn't feel like you were detracting, personally for me. Like, it really did feel like it was, like, it was helpful. And, I like, do you think in a way, even though it was conflicting, that the writing it, was it helpful for you in any way? Because it felt that way in terms of receiving it, like when I would read what you would write. Um, sometimes it was like pure escapism to just write something that has nothing to do with like anything in, in the headlines that felt good. But then sometimes like when you combine them and it, you know, and it didn't feel forced, like the one that I'm thinking of, I think I wrote this one newsletter where I just being stuck inside and looking at my computer all day as everybody was during the pandemic. I was like watching this like virtual town hall where um, the LAPD police chief and like a bunch of other people in the LAPD had like a public town hall and it went on and I'm not joking for something like 12 hours because like they gave, they had like a line of citizens waiting to call in and everybody got like 40 seconds or something like that. And everybody hopped on and like, all of the people use their time to be like, I think that the LAPD is a fucking disgrace. I think they need to resign. I need to, I think we need to have prison reform it uh, and, and all this shit. And like, it's the, it's the, it's the thing where that famous quote came out of, I yield my time. Fuck you. That's what that was taken from. And that became sort of like a meme, but I wrote a newsletter about how I watched it for like six hours not just for the schadenfreude of watching this like LAPD sheriff just get like reamed for six hours. It was amazing. (laughs) But, um, but also because like, it was sort of enlightening because um, I was like, wow, all of those records that I grew up on when I was a kid, like hip hop records and punk records and hardcore records that like taught me about like why the police force is not to be trusted and taught me like, why corruption and racism are so rampant i think that like everybody else is getting it now you know i think just like normal everyday people are finally wising up because they see videos of police doing like unspeakable things anyways so i like sort of wrote this email newsletter that i feel like did tie what i what was going on at the time to like music in some way just be like wow look at how much the music of the eighties and hip hop and punk and stuff has like come into national conversation finally, you know? So that was like one memory I have of like writing a newsletter that made sense. I'm sure there were some awful gibberish, but you know, sometimes you get a good one and sometimes not. Yeah. I I remember that town hall, particularly when uh, John Oliver talked about it and he interspersed like a whole segment with like, different clips of people reaming the cops. I remember that. That was, like, pretty funny. So good. That was something else. And, you know, in the context of the newsletter, and, I mean, I'm sure it's um, wild to you that's become what it's become. Like, you know, it's interesting. I have friends. I remember, like, when I got into your writing, there are people that I knew who had interactions with you, like, on an acquaintance level, and that was, like, a thing of, like, oh, we could talk about your writing. I know people who know your newsletter who have no idea about like your vice days or no idea about the writing that you've done previously, but have somehow found this newsletter of yours. And I wonder if um, your initial thoughts of what a newsletter could even be has shifted in regards to what it has become, like the contrast. Cause I feel like a prime example 
would be the piece that you wrote about uh, Jerry Saltz, aka the mm. world's most insane coffee drinker. <laughs> yeah, still the top post on that on that newsletter. That reading that was like one of those examples. To, it was similar to me about when you're at um, how do I describe it? Like when you're at a friend's house and he's arguing with his girlfriend, and you want to leave, but you kind of feel like you're held hostage. Yeah, that's really funny to hear that people only know the newsletter. But as to answer your question about how it's evolved from the inception of it, um, it's funny because I remember when I started it, I think two years ago, I told my editor, like, you know, I've been thinking about getting an email newsletter because this was kind of like before everybody got email newsletters. Like at that point, I think I only, the only person I knew that had one was Luke O'Neill and he was doing really well with his Hellworld. And so um, I was thinking of like, just, you know, I was coming off having a job so I was like needed a place to put my insane ramblings and I was like yeah I told my editor like I was thinking of getting a newsletter and she was like yeah and do it now because um you know like you want to use it to promote the book but you know you don't want to start from zero uh meaning like if I started my email newsletter now I would have like no followers on it so like put two two years into it or whatever and so I did I started it and but then it became a weird thing where I, I legitimately just felt for the last two years like I was filling time. I was just like working on this book, this huge book. And I was just like, well, the newsletter is just, you know, just kind of like warming up the crowd until the book actually comes out. And so like, I'm amazed that anybody likes anything from that because it's just kind of been a placeholder for a while. I mean, I, I've definitely seen the um, potential of it since then, but at first, I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to just try to build up this audience for now, and then I'll have better stuff to give them. You know what I think has been really um, pivotal about it, and it's reflective in like so many things that you've done and why I think your writing's very special is that one of the things I like about you a lot is that you're a writer that's not limited by your niche. Like People could describe you as a music writer, but it wouldn't be, do justice to everything that you write about. I mean, you're capable of writing prolifically about Taco Bell as much as you are about music and of course about like that wild dude with the coffee again one of the craziest yeah. people in the world and going into the aspect of the book do you feel like some of the writing you did on the newsletter helped within the vein that I mean when I read the newsletter it was clear to me that it was important to you to fail as though there's no limits to what you can write about I don't think that the newsletter helped with my book writing but I do think that working at Noisy for several years helped me with the newsletter because when I got to Noisy, it was the end of what I call like fun internet where <laughs> people were still just writing blogs where they, yeah, like ate two pounds of jelly beans or whatever for a blog post. And that was funny. But yeah, like, so I was still trying to just be like, well, what, what could be like fun with this? Like, this will be a place where I put just like my fun stuff where there's no rules to it, you know, just, um, just blogging for the love of the game. Um, <laughs> but the book is very serious. Like the book is the opposite. Like I tried, I, I like labored over every word in, in the book. So yeah, like the, the, the two, the newsletter and the book feel very disconnected to me. Yeah, I'm trying to like merge them now that I'm in like promo mode. Um, <laughs> but but it's it's weird because like I actually just wrote like a, a newsletter about this where like I hope like I get to goof around on the newsletter and it, it feels very like um, 
like you said, like friends hanging out and that, that feels fun. But at the same time, I'm like, man, I really hope people take the book seriously because the book is so serious and I put a lot of work into it and I hope it is judged like appropriately. And so when I do that kind of stuff on the newsletter, I'm like, man, I, this is fun, but like, I really hope it's not undercutting my work on the book, you know? I highly doubt that it will, because I think what's been really cool about the newsletter, even though it has like some, you know, goofy moments as a whole, you are conveying different um, nuances to your thoughts and your feelings. And it's not very, um, it's, there's, it's not one note at all. And yeah, I do think people will feel that way in the context of the book, because, you know, to be invested in your thoughts in a casual sense, I think will lend people to doing so in a more expansive sense in the context of a book. Yeah. I mean, like, I really do try to take the, the email newsletter format as an email. Like if I were starting an email to my friends and I was trying to like make them laugh or send them something funny, how would I do that? You know, and so a lot of it is conversational. A lot of it is like you, you know, like second person, like you, you, you. But the book is not that at all. <laughs> so... um yeah, I don't know. Maybe people will be like, read the book and be like, wow, the guy who writes me annoying emails wrote this? Like, this is pretty impressive. <laughs> um, I hope. I don't know. We'll see. Well, I'd love to get into the book now. And we've, of course, been talking about um, Sellout, which chronicles a very specific time between 1994 and 2007, where major labels mined pop punk, hardcore, and emo scenes of music and, quite frankly, signed bands without really considering what they do of them. For me personally, I mean, I was intrigued to read this book with being a fan of your writing, but also when I got into music was around um, 2009 and I started initially working with um, indie bands particularly and was interesting around like the 2009 to 2012, 13 period of music. There was a lot of that in the indie world. So it was interesting to like think about a time where it happened prior with a very specific lens. And um, honestly, man, I can't wait to read this book. Okay. Uh, I'm sincerely curious to hear what made you want to write about this time in music specifically? Uh, I mean, they say, write what you know, and this was like what I lived through. It's the conversation I remember just sort of dominating the music of the era in which I grew up. So I seemed to be like the right person for the job. And yeah, I mean, that, that's pretty much it. I was just like, I'm the person to do this. So <laughs> somebody better got tired of waiting and I just wrote it myself. I mean, we were talking a lot about the newsletter, but the way that fits into the context of the book is that for people who are following, you were very, it was a very interesting experience, man. You did this really cool thing where you were giving people insight into what it's like to even write a book, but in a way where you weren't like uh, pulling any punches and kind of showing like how it's a very laborious process. I mean, I remember the newsletter about how you were doing countless interviews and essentially refining those talks into a comprehensive retelling of this very specific period of time. And do you feel there was a significant contrast between what your expectations of writing a book like this were going to be versus how it came out? Because I think what's really intriguing is that a book like this is essentially made up of conversations. And even like something like this now, I could have, I could have had an idea of how this conversation was going to go. But by the very nature of you having your own mind, it was going to go somewhere completely different. That must be really weird when you have to consider an overall book format. Yeah, I mean, I have like journals, I should go back and read the early ones, like when I was starting it. But I mean, I do think that like, it came pretty close to 
what it was in the proposal stage, you know, like the way I proposed the book format wise. And, and I think it ended up like the best possible version of what I had proposed when I was selling the book. In a way, I don't think it got drastically different. It didn't land in such a drastically different place than where I had imagined it. And in fact, like, I'm really proud of like how much better it got. And even to like, just with the visuals of it and the cover, like, I really couldn't have imagined that in my head. Like, I just really love the way it came out. So yeah, like, I realized that there are, are books that, that are so different from what is sold to a publisher. Like, the end result ends up being so different. But mine, mine was pretty close. If nothing else, it was bigger and better. I think my contract had stipulated 130,000 words and it ended up being like 140,000 words. Like it's the best version of what I imagined it. That's amazing. I, I love the fact that you feel, I mean, I'm always taken aback in a positive way when I can hear someone talk about their work and I could tell that they have that feeling of pride towards it where they kind of look at what they did and go like, oh, I did that thing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like, it, and it's crazy, too, because I feel like I, I wrote it at this point, like, I must have finished it in, like, March or April or something like that. So I've been done with it for months. And so, like, enough time has passed that I'll, like, just look at it over there and, like, pick it up and be like, this is good. Like, <laughs> I, I wrote this, you know, like, it, I, I can appreciate it because it, I, I have a, a, a very hard time appreciating uh, my own work. I, I often don't like it in hindsight, but um, this book, as of right now, anyway, like I can sort of separate myself from it because it does seem like another person wrote it. Just like a not like past Dan did me this huge favor and wrote this good book, and now I just get to reap the rewards from it. But um, it really just feels like I can admire it from afar in a weird way. What a wild thing that you get to experience in real time. Because I feel like for most people, it must take them years to feel that way. I, I mean, like once I was done with it, I had worked so intensely on it that once it was like done and going into production and everything, I kind of like just didn't keep picking it up and reading it. Like I was just like, that's, that's enough. You know, like I got to let this sit for a while. And over the whole summer, I really just didn't go back on it. So again, like now looking back at it with like fresh eyes, I'm like, damn, this is good. <laughs> Maybe something will come along that will corrupt my feelings about it. But for the moment, I'm like, <laughs> you know, it's that like, it's that like week before pub excitement and before the weight of the world crushes your shoulders and everybody has an opinion about it. So yeah. right now feels good. Okay. Well, you know, taking these stories, like I mentioned before, you know, taking these stories and making them relate to each other within a specific context. I mean, to be honest, man, it sounds extremely difficult. And, you know, reflecting how the book eventually came together, do you feel there was a single theme that connected all these bands together? Uh, aside from, you know, the obvious nature of that labels were approaching them and like, you know, the period of years that you were covering? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of common threads in the book. It was written, you know, it's compartmentalized into 11 different chapters, but it really is meant to be read as one story and there's like a a lot of through lines in the book and a lot of like themes and elements that are reoccurring and I tried to like do that deliberately like I had this like excel spreadsheet that was color coordinated and so I would like mark 
where different things came up in different chapters, just so I could like visualize it. I could just look at it on one spreadsheet and be like, yep, this is even like, this is, um, everything that's like addressed comes back up and everything gets resolved and everything. So, um, yeah, there's definitely like a lot of, I wouldn't even know where to start, but there's like a lot of interconnectivity between the, the band stories for sure. This is probably the most obvious question to ask, but it is one that I'm very curious about because I mean, Laura Jane Grace is one of my favorite people on earth. And you wrote this amazing book, uh, Tranny. Well, you co-wrote it with her. And I mean, do you feel the experience that you had in co-writing Tranny influenced how you even approach writing solo? It definitely influenced it for sure. But there were differences as well. It was lonelier, you know, like this time around, um, for sure. Like I shared Google documents with Laura and then sometimes I would like wake up and she had written a bunch of stuff at like 3 a.m. And I had to like sift through it and see if I could like, you know, buff it up a little bit and make it better and go through what she had basically like untangle it. I always described it like as she would like give me a drawer full of wires and like Christmas lights. And I, in the morning would like wake up and just try to untangle it and make it good. And that's how we kind of worked. Like she dumped material and then I would try to straighten it out. Um, but for this book, you know, you just open the Google docs every morning and it's just like the way you left it the night before. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and so it's, it, it was just like lonelier in that regard for sure. You know, and, and also too, like, I think Laura and I, when we were working on her book, we thought in the same way a lot. I think she and I are very similar in, in how we think sometimes. And, um, you know, it's just good to have uh, somebody to bounce ideas off of it. Like, is this good? Is this corny? Should we go with this? Like, yeah, totally. But, you, you know, doing my own book, I'm just like, well, I like it. <laughs> so I hope it, I hope other people do. So yeah, definitely a, a different experience. Yeah, um, I, I probably should mention, I imagine a person who'll be listening to this right now is um, Tito Billis, who is uh, Laura's uh, publicist, a good friend of mine. And yeah, if you're listening, Tito, hi. I think I, I, I think I made Tito hate me over the course of that book. Because <laughs> it was just so much work for him that probably he didn't want to deal with. And I'm sorry, Tito, if he is listening. <laughs> it was strenuous, you know? It was like, anyways. I'm, I'm sure you'll be getting like an interesting DM off the heels of that. You, you know, <laughs> Tito's great, though. I love Tito. He's amazing. You know, before I go to the next question, it, it was interesting when you just mentioned how it could be quite lonely. I remember, um, because I follow you on Twitter as well, naturally. And I remember after I watched um, Sound of Metal, the film of Riz Ahmed, I remember one on Twitter and I saw that you tweeted something like, oh, wow, why is he so upset about having to be in like a room with a window and a coffee and a donut? That's just me every day. Like, yeah, metal here, like here is my notebook that I write my thoughts in every day and my coffee mug that I write, uh, that I drink coffee out of. And then I have donuts right next to me and I look out the window and that is how I start my morning. I thankfully have my most of my hearing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's a dream. What a dream, honestly. <laughs> like absolute silence to write your thoughts about your like youth of today hoodies or whatever he was writing about. <laughs> a dream. All the greenery that he had in the window in front of him. Was <laughs> yeah, it looked nice. It's like, damn, should I go deaf? Nah, that, that doesn't seem right. <laughs> and talking about this with you, I mean, I feel like the experience of writing a book on your own and having to live within your own head the way you have, you know, it's so unique to how most people are going to experience 
just life in general. I mean, obviously people work and they're in cars and they commute and, you know, travel and they're in their own heads. But in the idea, you know, with the idea of putting, you know, pen to paper and forming a book like this, that is really unique. And I wonder, like, do you think that you learned more about yourself within the process of writing the book, even if it's not something specific, but just in like a general sense? Yeah, what a deep question. I try not to do any self-reflection or, or self-betterment. Uh, I try, <laughs> if nothing else, to get worse as time goes by. We so all know. So I want to say no. <laughs> but I, I mean, like, um, I guess what I learned is that, like, I don't know if I, like, stopped to really learn to think about what I learned about myself. But I do think that I am proud of the achievement. Like, it was a very hard um, especially last year during the pandemic, like it was hard for everybody, of course. Um, it was hard for me. Like I didn't, nobody like, you know, I, I saw a lot of people complaining during the pandemic that it was just like, Oh, who wants to fucking work today? Who wants to e answer emails? And I totally get that for sure. I felt like that all the time, but also too, like my editor was waiting for a deadline. So I just couldn't fuck off. And so as bad as the whole last year was, I mean, not just with the pandemic, but the election and all the protests and everything, like, I am I'm truly amazed that I had the focus to get up every day and write enough that after, after that, by the end of the year, I had a book out of it. Um, so like, I don't, I don't know how like my own perspective of myself has changed, but like, I think I can probably look at myself and be like, yeah, I'm capable of accomplishing things if I just set and do it. Like I'm a very goal oriented person and I like to figure out, okay, what, what's the ultimate goal? And then what are the benchmark things that I have to do to get there? And when do I have to meet those by? And so like, I'm pretty good at, I think when you're self-employed, you have to be good at like being your own taskmaster because nobody else is going to do it. Nobody else is going to be like, did you get this done on time? So yeah, like I, I, I think of nothing else. I'm just like impressed with myself to like be able to put hell world aside and focus on this completely unrelated thing, you know? Yeah, completely. And you know, you bringing that up just reminded me of um, uh, one of my friends, a therapist friend actually, um, like pretty early on in the midst of the pandemic, she said something that has stuck with me over the course of all of this madness that we've been experiencing but she said it was kind of like a twofold thing she noted how because we're living this in real time people are going through a traumatic experience but it's happening in succession of days and days because we're still in it and then the other layer to that is because therapists are also dealing with it in the context of just being regular everyday people the amount of help they could offer people is very limited because they too are going through this traumatic thing and it's just sure I've seen that happen to my friends too, like outside the pandemic, you know, like I have a lot of friends who you can probably guess who are musicians and comedians who make songs and jokes about depression and anxiety and dealing with the world around us. And I mean, I've seen it firsthand. Like I've seen kids come up to my friends who are musicians and be like, your music helped me through this. Like, how do I, how do, how do I do this? You know? And like, they wrote the song, that person wrote the song because they were going through it as well. You know, they wrote a joke because 
you know, the, the one person that I'll, I'll out in this regard, because like he, we talked about it in a public interview is Chris Gethard, who, you know, did a whole stand-up special or a one-man special about um, suicide and suicidal ideology thoughts. And, you know, obviously as a result of that, he gets like tons and tons and tons of private messages and emails and DMs about like, I also tried to kill myself. I also tried to do this. And, um, you know, like, I think he said in the interview we did that, like, he kind of had to stop checking those because there's, it would be a full-time job just to do that. And he doesn't have the training <laughs> to do that. He was, he wrote that special because he was just a guy who went through that. And I think he's very flattered that other people connect to it, but he is not equipped to give people advice because <laughs> the special was just him trying to f- figure his way through it, you know? So I think that's a good thing to keep in mind whenever you're like, are talking to an artist. I think it's good to be like, hey, your music helped me through uh, something. But I I think you should not expect help from them. (laughs) (laughs) Because it makes most people feel really uncomfortable, you know? No, you know, what's interesting is I've had a similar... So outside the context of this, I do music photography. And I've been with a couple acts when they're like promoting albums or touring. And um, What's been really interesting is I've had a window seat to seeing similar experiences, but what's really kind of stuck out to me is seeing it when it's like a band or a singer songwriter who is particularly very young and they're like touring and promoting an album for the first time. And that compounded with the pressure of doing that along with just getting these types of messages for the first time in your life. Yeah. It's a really weird thing to witness, like just from the side. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been with Laura, when people have come up to her and just straight up and like, Hey, I, I was thinking of kill my, killing myself and I listened to your music and then I, I didn't want to do that. And she's handled it really like a pro cause she's, you know, going to be 41 soon and she's a little bit older, but also too, like I saw it happen with a band like modern baseball who was, who were kids and, you know, early to touring and kids would say that to them. And I, I don't think that they knew how to handle it as well. It's, it's not something that anybody teaches you, how to handle um nobody teaches you how to be famous there's no like book that i know about how to become famous and and there's certainly no book to be like how do you deal with everybody's trauma when they're dumping it on you actually i think i did an interview with uh jeremy balm too from touche amore and you know he had written that record about his mom passing away and ever since he did that, like, you know, he'll just be having a good night at a venue and then somebody will grab him by the arm and tell him like the most horrific grief story that they have. And he doesn't know what to do with that information. And so I don't know for anybody listening, I think it is definitely good and beneficial to get what you can from a song or a piece of art if that helps you. But like, you must keep in mind that the person who made it wrote it because they were going through it as well. So um, yeah. don't, don't put the burden on them because they're, <laughs> they're people going through the same thing, you know? Yeah, completely. And, you know, before I go into like the next question, I could share like a story that's almost like a bit of a palate cleanser because uh, you brought up uh, Chris Gufford, who I don't know personally, but I've interacted with. And um, the first time I saw him live was years ago. I can't remember the year, but it was like two days after Christmas. The front bottoms are playing Shea Stadium and he opened up for them like kind of like randomly. It wasn't like a thing that was like advertised. Mm-hmm. And something that he did that I'll never forget for the rest of my life is 
his whole like 20 to 30 minute comedy sketch was him just showing uh his tattoos of the smiths oh yeah telling the stories he has that one that says it takes courage to be gentle and kind yeah (laughs) nothing like having morrissey words on on your body oh my god because i remember i think by the third tattoo i was like there's no way this guy's for real he doesn't i think that's recorded somewhere i think he's done that bit a few times and i think i found that on youtube if people are looking for it it is a good bit (laughs) yeah you know something that i was really keen to talk to you about and you know it's also something that listeners might not be familiar with is how due to the state of media with constant layoffs and media outlets being corporatized there's a massive wave of writers crafting their own newsletters and growing audiences themselves in the process and you know the main reason the main goal a lot of people do this is to have a place where writers can write without an agenda without a specific mandate and it's essentially a new form of freedom for a lot of people. And I know writers who have looked to what you've done with your newsletter, they kind of view it as like the right way to approach things. How does it make you feel knowing that? That knowing in a way, sometimes people look at you and think like, I want to do what Dan's doing, even though what essentially Dan is doing is what's reflective of who he is as a person. Hmm. I mean, that's news to me. I didn't know that. I I generally don't know what people are saying about me and like, in a way I avoid it because I assume it's like negative. So I just like really avoid what people, but that's flattering to hear. Um, But it's also odd to hear because I just am also figuring it out as I go. I'm like trying things and be like, okay, this worked. I'll do more of this. So um, I I don't really have an agenda. So if people are following me, I I don't, I, I wouldn't say follow my lead, you know, like do what works for you because I'm figuring it out. It's like new, new world in media, you know, and like, but I guess everybody, there's that line in the Simpsons that always makes me laugh where um, mm-hmm. Marge is like, you know, maybe I could start teaching piano lessons. And <laughs> she's like, but mom, you don't play the piano. And she's like, well, I figure I just have to stay one step ahead of the kid. And that's how I feel like maybe people are looking up to me, but I am literally just like one step ahead of them. And in a way, like I, I looked up to Luke when, you know, when he, what he had going with his newsletter. And so, yeah, I don't know, like maybe, maybe I'm ahead of some people, but I am like just barely. Ahead of people. You know what I love about that is that right before you brought up that Simpsons reference, I was going to like kind of accuse you of being modest. But then when you put it in that frame of context, that's so specifically beautiful that it's just like, the truth that rings is like, you know, it's unmissable, really. Just one, literally just one piano lesson ahead of everybody behind me. <laughs> That's just the best <laughs> way I can say it. You know, your Twitter bio reads America's only music writer. And it's funny because I definitely know some people who feel that way about your work. Again, another compliment. <laughs> okay. I do, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I do know if you Just too many compliments, Ken. Let's, I might come out of here thinking I have a positive self-image. We gotta, <laughs> let's knock it down a little bit. <laughs> It'll be interesting for when you go into the Matrix. Your whole visual fr- experience will be different. Yeah, this is, I'm going to be insufferable for a week because of this. <laughs> we, one, t- one time, me and my friends uh, were at a plant store in Highland Park around here. Yeah. And we were coming out of there. And some guy was just like, hey, are you Dan Ozzy? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, oh, I really like your writing. And my friend just goes, oh, we're going to have to hear about this all day now. <laughs> so imagine what this interview is doing, Ken. You're ruining my, my friend circle. I'm happy to do it. Another yeah. story. I'll share another story to add to that. I remember like when I was like 20, 
I complimented the bass player of a band and his wife told me like, yeah, he won't like do dishes for a week. <laughs> he just keeps telling me about all the things he said. That's so funny. <laughs> um, but tell me, where did that bit in your Twitter bio come from? Do you remember? You know, it's funny. I've never been asked about that. And I'm glad somebody finally did. Oh, sweet. Um, I was afraid that everyone had asked you about no, it. No, I've never been asked about that. And I, I don't, I can't put my finger exactly why I thought of that one day. I think it was because like, uh, you know, like uh, there are a lot of music writers um, out there. So obviously it's like not factually accurate. It's sort of like a tongue in cheek joke. But in another way too, I'm like, yeah, but it's my weird way of being like, yeah, but I'm the best. You know, like it's like the Clash didn't uh, call themselves the only band that matters because they thought their songs stunk. You know, like it's it's just me being like, yeah, that's right. Only only music like it, it would be funny to, you know, it's not as funny to be like the best one. I'm like America's only music writer as if like there's nobody even in my tier. So for some reason, that's <laughs> funny to me, but it's also aspirational. It's just be like, yeah, maybe I could be. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You, you know what led me to asking you about it is because um it's intrigued me over the years how you've been able to essentially be very honest with your writing where, you know, I think sometimes people might read your stuff and can mistake the tone as being almost confrontational. But mm. I think when you actually read deeper, it's clear that you just have, and it kind of is reflective of like when we started this talk is that you just have this genuine curiosity towards your musicians and a specific curiosity about why they make the decisions they make. And do you feel that's kind of, a good descriptor of like how you approach writing in a way, like a sense of curiosity kind of driving things. Hmm. I guess so. Um, really like I, I've said this before, but um, really like I've had the same friends since high school and my whole thing is, has been driven by like just writing for my friends, you know, like I feel like I'm this weird, uh, like among my friends, I'm like, this guy who like accidentally slipped through the cracks and like made it. And so now like I have to like represent where I came from. And like, so I, I just always feel like I'm writing for my friends and trying to like entertain them. So I don't know if it's like curiosity, like my own personal curiosity so much as it is like, Oh, I'm going to write something my friends would like. And then it turns out that I have, there's a lot of people out there who are a lot like my friends and also want to read it. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I also think it's kind of uh, poignant within the sense that I don't want to like generalize or speak for people, but uh, this is just my perspective. I, I feel like what's really interesting about you saying that is that so many people get into writing or content making. I'm like using air quotes because mm -hmm. I hate the word content, but it's like a lot of people get into these areas trying to do almost anything but that, where they have the idea that I want to reach such a large audience that I don't even care what my friends think. And it's interesting how in a weird way that's kind of worked out with you in reverse, where having that core of like, I want to interest my friends can like work out in a good way. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, um, it gets very daunting when you think of audience, when you consider your audience and who's reading it. Like when I was writing Sellout, you know, like you start thinking of like, okay, um, there are going to be super fans of you know, my chemical romance who read this chapter about them and I got to please them. And then like, but there's also people who have never heard of my chemical romance before and I, I have to please them. And then, you know, the people who are in the band are going to read this book and you're like, well, I got to get it right 
for them. And then you're like people who, who my critics, like my haters, you know, are going to read this and I got to show them. And it gets so daunting. And after you've considered how many people are reading it, it, it you feel like you're backed into a corner, you know, so it, it gets so limiting. And so when I think of that, when I start getting overwhelmed by like, who's going to read it and what they're going to say about it and what their opinions are going to be, I just like center myself by just like thinking about my friends and being like, I'm going to write this for them because I want, I care what they, I care what they think about me. And then when I like open my eyes, I'm, I've done it. And then the larger audience can consume it, but it's just for me and my friends, you know? That's beautiful, man. I mean, my, like the last thing I want to ask you about, it's kind of reflective of just everything you just said, but do you feel like there's a specific hope or desire in regards to what you want people to get from the book after they read it? Or do you feel like because of the stories being, you know, about different people and their own experiences, it's kind of like you want people to just take whatever they can in their own way? I mean, or maybe both even. You know what? I think that when you make any piece of art, as soon as it's released, it belongs to the world and uh, it doesn't, it's not really yours anymore. And so like whatever is going to happen with it is going to happen with it. But as far as like my intention, like this sounds so conceited, but I really like wrote it hoping that like someone would read it and just be like, this is the best book about rock ever written. You know, like I, I, and because I was just like, well, why wouldn't I try to do that? You know, um, this, I'm not doing this just for a paycheck. Like I really, I, I read so many rock books and like, I would be honored to be like considered among the greats, you know? And, but in a way that's just such a fool's errand because like, how do you even measure such a thing? You know, it's like greatest rock books, like says who, you know, like if somebody gets something from it, then it's great to them. So, you know, like you get overwhelmed thinking about this kind of stuff, but just for my own personal edification, like I want to be able to read my own book and being like, yes, this slays everything else. Like this is important. I guess like my hope for it is that like it has long legs you know like you'll go into somebody's apartment 10 years from now and you'll see it on their shelf among like you know it's just like a staple the way like i don't know infinite jest is or something like that <laughs> where you just go to somebody's apartment and you just you just know that it's going to be there you know like it's just like a dog-eared copy of it so that's really my goal is that um it stays around for a while. However, I respect my work too much to think that it won't be forgotten at some point. Like there's no point of just holding on to it forever. And just like, I'm just going to make the next thing after that. So I don't know, I guess like the book will take on its own life starting in a few days. So uh, I am powerless to it. it. It's the world's problem now, Kim, not mine. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting my copy. I mean, you know, um, this will be coming out after the book comes out and after some live events you'll be doing. I'm hoping to be going to the one you're doing in Brooklyn. Um, how, how do you feel about that? Uh, you know what? Like I pared down the events because I'm just like, I have this perpetual fear of just uh, performing to an empty room. I don't know how comedians and musicians do it. Like when it's just like a half filled or less room. I, I hosted a Simpsons trivia night in 
Brooklyn for I think six years. And we had like a cult following, like the same groups of people would come every single month, rain or shine in the middle of the winter. We never, we had as many as like 250 people. We never had fewer than like 150 people. It was a guaranteed attendance every single month. And yet the half an hour before we started every single month. I was like, nobody's going to come. We should have <laughs> taken out a Facebook ad or something. Nobody's going to come. And then sure enough, it just filled up. So like, I don't know. I just have like a perpetual fear of talking to nobody. So I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that people, I'm hoping that people come and, um, you know, like it's entertaining enough that they feel like they got their time out of it. I don't know. Fingers crossed. I'm not going to think about it too much. Well, you definitely will have one person there. Dan, thanks so much great. for having me today. I, that's I really 100% appreciate. more attendance than I anticipated there would be, so that's perfect. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to The New Exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.